You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hello and welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'll be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And so today we have much to discuss and let's just jump right in with the question of, Shane, what are your credentials right now? So right now I am a BCBA and I have a PhD. So I've been doing this for a long time. Fraudulent liar. <laughs> no! <Just kidding. laughs> and did you experience any like self-doubt or... I guess, in reflecting upon where you were at and people depending on you and that sort of thing, concern about your ability to meet the requirements of those credentials or be able to sort of fulfill on the expectations of those roles? Oh, I do it all the time. I still do it. I actually had a conversation the other day where somebody had offered to pay me to come speak somewhere. And even in the interaction, I was like, I'm just a kid from the beach. Why do you want to hear me talk? Yeah. So I yeah. can't, I can't charge you money for this. Yeah. I can't charge you money for this. I'm going to go and like, I'm going to wear sneakers and use profanity in front of you. Like this is not going to be helpful for anybody. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I very much have had this experience on multiple occasions and most recently completing my degree have experienced a good amount of like sort of anxiety and fear around you know, they're going to come take this away from me and they're going to think, you know, they're going to think about this and decide to change their mind because they didn't really deserve it. And just a lot of those sorts of thoughts rolling through my head. Persistently for me, it's, it's somebody's going to figure me out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are listening to this and you have maybe experienced this before, raise your hand. Just kidding. But <laughs> not that we would be able to see. <laughs> No, but seriously, this is this is a real effect, and a lot of people probably are going to hear this and immediately think, oh, geez, that, that has definitely been me. I've had that experience. And yeah, that's actually the case, as we'll get into. A lot of people have this experience of feeling sort of unworthy, I guess. And so what we're talking about today is called imposter syndrome. And to define this right up front, it's the belief that you're not worthy of your accomplishments and that any success you have must be a result of you being a fraud or sort of being able to trick people into believing that you are capable of doing the thing that you're doing. And I do want to be clear, there are frauds out there and they probably know who they are. Oh, yeah. But there are also these people who have actually achieved success and a high level of mastery in a particular skill or set of skills like Liam Neeson. And that even with that actual competency feel like they're not really as good as people want or maybe treating them as people are treating them to be, I guess. Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of distinguish between like being humble about your skill set and kind of saying like, you know, I am just as good as anybody else or having that kind of feeling versus I'm a fraud, I'm a phony, I'm, I'm going to get figured out. Like there is a, a a large jump, even though they kind of talk about them being in the same arena. You know, like for example, I know that I, what I'm good at in my field is like, I'm a pretty good public speaker. I could do assessment pretty well, but there's a lot of other stuff where I'm like, I know I can, but then I have these moments where it's like, somebody's going to figure me out and figure out that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to or something like that. Right. And so, as I mentioned, this is probably going to resonate well with a lot of people, or at least this will sound familiar to a lot of people because there's an estimated 70% of people report having this experience of being competent, but feeling like they're sort of frauds and that they're going to be sort of found out. 
in some of the groups of people, this is cited from bside21.org. You'll see that they talk about people with imposter syndrome could be highly successful people, managers, professors, doctors, minorities, grad students, pretty much anybody in a position where they are looked at as a leader or somebody who is looked at as an expert. And you'll see a lot of those people have that experience. But other people outside of that too, I mean, people that are first year learners or just getting into college. I mean, I've met high school graduates that are like, I can't believe I got accepted to the school. How did this happen? So it does affect a lot of people. Now, this can show up in a few different ways. The sort of broad categories that are described are that you, if someone is having this experience of being an imposter or having imposter syndrome, that you might see someone look sort of like an obsessive workaholic, or you might see someone go the opposite direction and do some procrastination. I think that you there's another category of someone who might combine those things a little bit, but generally is just going to have a lot of anxiety and concern that they doesn't necessarily show up real directly in their work, but nevertheless feels that way about it. And what that might look like is just reluctance to do things and not necessarily procrastination. Like they might do things really well and do them on time, but they might just feel like, I don't, I don't deserve to be here. This isn't something I should be doing. I'm just going to, I guess I'll take it on. Like they might show up that way would be my thought. But you can imagine that if someone is legitimately concerned about the reality or maybe the legitimacy of the credential that they ha- that has been placed upon them or uh, the trust that someone has placed in them, that the outcome of that might be to work way harder than they actually need to to like really prove that they deserve it or else to try and shy away from it and just avoid putting themselves in a spotlight where they're going to be found out. And so it does make sense that those are sort of the broad categories that they see. And this was a funny kind of a, an interesting resource that was found in our show notes was imposter syndrome.com. There's a whole group. <laughs> yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And so what they kind of mentioned on there is that when it's time to get things done, You end up procrastinating, but if you do too well, others will demand the same or more of you. So now there's this other side of it, too, where it's like, if I do it really well, people are going to keep asking me. So I want to maybe avoid it so that people don't keep asking me to do this thing. Right. And so one of our new primary researchers who did most of the work on this article, Alan Kinsella, he found on this on BuzzFeed, there was a quote where someone said, quote, I have trouble charging for my work because I feel like a four year old asking someone to buy my macaroni art. And and. <laughs> quote. And so this seems to be someone who is an artist who's thinking maybe they're even really good at being an artist, but they're sort of saying, I don't deserve to take your money. This thing isn't good enough for someone to actually pay me for it, that sort of thing. I will say this. It sounds fairly harmless on the surface, but it actually leads to some pretty like detrimental things. Like, you know, like we don't as practitioners or as speakers or as professionals, if we have this kind of mindset about everything that we do, then we stop valuing our time. And if we don't value our time, then we end up giving so much of ourselves to these situations or these people, you know, we don't really have the time to do that or we don't have the energy to do that and we can burn out from it. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people, when they are experiencing this, they're going to explain their ability to achieve in terms of matters of just being lucky or in the right circumstance or that they had the right people to sort of help them navigate a particular opportunity and that it wasn't really them. And I mean, for some people, again, that is going to be true. But going back to this imposter syndrome.com, they mentioned that 
there was this experience of success being dependent on luck specifically and uh, references the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. And he described luck as determinism based on any number of variables and then any other number of variables that may have contributed. So, for example, if you met the right person or you were in the right place at the right time, you knew the answer to a question then you get this linear progression of these events that were necessary to influence any particular behavior at any time. And so it could have only been that particular way based on those things that sort of cascaded and led to that outcome, right? Yeah. But that's sort of an experience that people have when they look at themselves as being these imposters is like, I just got lucky, you know? And I mean, for some people, it's kind of true. And I think also it's worth pointing out that a lot of these are people who put in a, the work to actually get where they were at. I recently did a talk at a conference and it was on a subject that is just outside of my scope a little bit, but not quite. I, I had done it a little bit. And I had mentioned at the beginning of this is like, I'm not somebody who is considered an expert in this area, but here's what worked for me. And here's what this is based on what I know. And I had somebody come up to me after the talk and they were like, Everything you said was on point. Everything you said makes sense. And everything that you said aligns with the theory. What you need to not do is talk yourself out of the space because you know what you're doing and you know what you're talking about. And I've watched you work and you have the data to show it. Don't talk yourself out of that space. Don't discredit your work from the beginning. And I think that happens sometimes with people who kind of suffer from this. That's a good point. And we'll get more into some suggestions about how to manage or deal with this feeling of being an imposter. But definitely one that I got from a lot of my mentors was don't apologize. Don't show that you're unsure of yourself because nobody else is going to take it that way unless you make them take it that way. So if you tell everyone you're a fraud, they'll believe you, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, you know, even if you don't feel confident, portray that confidence because that's how everyone else will receive it. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of background on imposter syndrome. So let's get into that. So it was first coined by uh, clinical psychologist Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes in 1978. So it's a fairly new concept in terms of psychological perspectives. But yeah. it was originally described as the imposter phenomenon, and it was observed that people with adequate external evidence of accomplishments remained convinced that they don't deserve the success they have. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So even those outputs that would normally say you're successful, those don't necessarily work to produce more successful behavior and that they also don't necessarily result in the feeling of being success. And so what happens then is there is this there are some assumptions that one might make about themselves or about others. And according to Muse.com, discussing the imposter syndrome, they say, quote, it reflects a belief that you are inadequate and an incompetent failure despite evidence that indicates you're skilled and quite successful, end quote. And this is another thing that we've already mentioned several times, this idea of waiting and expecting that you're going to be found out, quote unquote, found out or discovered or someone's going to sort of uncover your fraudulentness. And, (laughs) (laughs) And so this can really impact the way that you sort of portray yourself in terms of how confident you appear to others. Yeah. And then to go further into that on impostersyndrome.com, there's a quote that says people who feel like imposters hold themselves to an unrealistic and unsustainable standard of competence falling short of the standard evokes shame. And I actually just had a conversation with a supervisee about this. There was a crisis situation and they handled it and they said they spent two weeks perseverating over the situation. What could I have done better? I shouldn't be in the situation, like all this stuff. And I just 
when I when I was talking to them, I said I had to stop them and say, you know, and in that circumstance, is that person alive? Did you keep them safe? Are you safe? Is that what happened? Then that's what matters most. And you did your job. That's the part. And then we had the conversation about science not having a finish line and all that. But <laughs> even in that moment, it was a one time moment that just shook this supervisee's entire foundation of their confidence. Wow. It's a bummer yeah. of a story. I mean, it's an important one, though, but I think that is certainly going to be relevant for a lot of people. And, and I've had that experience myself as well. So, all right, Shane, what do we know about why people experience imposter syndrome? We know very little about why. <laughs> so Darn it. Yeah. So we understand very little about why it may occur in some kind of relation to maybe like an underlying physiological condition, but it tends to be more like reactions to challenging contingencies and like these challenging situations. And so that's what happens a lot is a situation comes up and it's a little bit tough. And so people have this experience. And, and when we talk about this, more focus is actually given to the common symptoms of the phenomenon rather than some of the more complex things that we're going to talk about. And in stating that it is something that most of the population seems to experience to some extent kind of gives it this idea that it's a common phenomenon. So it's general symptoms, general things, and kind of that languaging around that. There is some co-occurrence with social anxiety disorder, and you kind of see that a little bit, and, and others that fall into that anxiety disorder realm, but the symptoms are not exclusive to those populations. So you have this kind of phenomenon that is occurring across symptoms across populations across people without really a good box to fit in. Well, and I also want to be careful here that we don't give the impression that if you are experiencing imposter syndrome that you have an anxiety disorder. It would be very unrealistic to say that 70% of people have an anxiety disorder. You might experience anxiety, but the point at which it becomes chronic and impactful is when it becomes a disorder. And the is not what we're trying to suggest here is this is this is something that a lot of people experience if you are concerned about having an anxiety disorder definitely go see a mental health professional for diagnosis that is obviously something that should be diagnosed so that you can have resources to deal with that but i just want to deter that experiencing this effect does not mean that you have any kind of anxiety disorder you might but it, this doesn't in and of itself diagnose that does that make sense yeah absolutely that makes perfect sense yeah, I just want to make sure we're clear on that because there might be co-occurrence there, but it does it's not a, a cause-effect relation. Right. Now let's there are some people that are famous, successful people who have noted their experience with imposter syndrome. So for example, John Steinbeck, the famous author of Grapes of Wrath, right? And of Mice yeah, and Men. Yeah, and of Mice and Men, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he said, quote, I am not a writer. I've been fooling myself and other people, end quote. <laughs> Which, for one of the most prolific writers of all time, is kind of ironic to hear, you know? Yeah. And this one made me laugh when I read it was Dave Grohl. You know, if you're not familiar with Dave Grohl and his music, you've ever heard any Nirvana song or the Foo Fighters. That's the guy on top of, I don't know, them crooked vultures and probot. And he played on some nine inch nails records and he's done all this stuff. He's a really prolific musician. Yeah, he's been all over the place. He has literally been all over the place. Queens of the Stone Age. In interviews, he's alluded to the fact that he transitioned from the drummer of Nirvana to the frontman of the Foo Fighters, despite, you know, not ever really having that opportunity to like move into a leader role. And, you know, kind of like Ringo Starr does, right? Ringo Starr did that from the Beatles. Like he moved into a solo artist in that realm. Right. And he never really claimed to be a master guitar, but there's actually a story where he ended up re-recording all the drum tracks for the second Foo Fighters album because even though there was a drummer that had recorded it, and he recorded the entire first Foo Fighters album by himself. So he played all the instruments on the first album. 
And, you know, there's some examples that we're going to talk about, like this idea of being a soloist or a perfectionist. But, you know, that's going to be kind of the characterizations that we talk about later. But I just it makes me laugh to think that Dave Grohl is somebody who suffers from this because you're a drummer. So, like, what are your thoughts on Dave Grohl as a drummer? I thought he was fine as a drummer. He never stood out to me as being like the greatest drummer in the world, but I thought he did very well. And I also liked him in the Foo Fighters. So I'm I'm mostly just impressed with him as a musician all around. Yeah. Absolutely. I like Dave Kroll. I think he's seems like a cool guy. Yeah. And on that point, with this whole thing of him like re-recording the drums, I think there is definitely something that to be expected about people who experience imposter syndrome and kind of want to do it all themselves. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But you can get this sense that someone who is capable of doing that much can see themselves both as a fraud but also simultaneously as like i'm the only one who can do this at least with my vision and being unwilling to compromise on that vision and so seeing themselves almost as lone wolf is kind of a way i think about it and to that point there's a quote from john lennon where he says quote part of me suspects i'm a loser and part of me thinks i'm god almighty end quote and (laughs) i think he's being hyperbolic here but really speaking that to the point of like at times like i feel like a fraud but i also feel like i'm the only one who can do this and it's this weird dichotomy where those even it's not even dichotomy really it's these two completely opposite opinions that sit juxtaposed next to one another that sort of represents this just general inconsistency and unease about how to even think about your own work so like the fact that you've got people like dave Grohl, john steinbeck like john lennon who is was an incredible songwriter yeah not great human but great songwriter. <laughs> How dare you? Oh, imagine all the people. <laughs> but then you've got Meryl Streep and Jodie Foster, who are incredible, incredible actresses. They are self-admitted that they are imposters, that they go back and say the same types of things like, ah, I shouldn't be here. I don't deserve this. And they have those moments. And it moves from being kind of like humble and being like, thank you. I really appreciate that. Is there anything I could do to be better? Versus, I shouldn't be here, I haven't earned this, I don't deserve it. And there's a big difference between those two. Do you suppose Meryl Streep just cries herself to sleep on a bed of her Oscars? <laughs> I think that she puts them away because she might be ashamed to have them. Because she's like, I haven't earned these. <laughs> that's that's probably more realistic. <laughs> Alright, so according to Muse.com and ImpostorSyndrome.com, Dr. Valerie Young categorized imposter syndrome into five subcategories. And she published this book called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, Why Capable People Suffer from the Imposter Syndrome and How to Thrive in Spite of It. And the five categories that she came up with are the perfectionist, the superwoman or superman, the natural genius the soloist, and the expert. So let's go through those one at a time. Do you want to take the first one? Yeah. So the first one that she mentions is the perfectionist. And and some of the characteristics that she talks about are setting excessively high goals, failure to accomplish some results, and, and there's some self-doubt related to that, micromanagement, difficulty, delegating tasks, and success is rarely satisfying. Like they could have always done better, which uh, I'm, I'm going to say I relate to some of that. You know, I have a hard time with that. And so in relation to those things, so you talk about the activities or some alternatives that you can look at to kind of replace some of those things and those thoughts. They talk about acknowledging mistakes as part of the learning process, which I think is important and pushing yourself to act before you're ready, because essentially there's never going to be a good time and you're never going to be flawless in what you do. I, I tell people that with parenting all the time. You're never, never, never ready to be a parent. Nobody is ever, no matter how many resources you have. You're just not. So just don't do it. Just don't do it. Just kidding. (laughs) There's enough people. There are plenty of people out there. (laughs) 
there are also parenting classes, so there's like there's help and resources and whatnot. But yeah. All right. So the next one that I mentioned was the Superman or Superwoman subtype. And this is characterized by people. This is the sort of workaholic person. These are people who push themselves really hard and and push themselves harder and harder. They take on excessive workloads. Again, a lot of this is around their insecurity about their fitness or their ability to, to produce things, which can end up really straining their relationships and can lead to some mental health issues. They have a lot of problems with downtime, their hobbies and passions will often suffer and so they often feel like they need to earn their title by working harder and longer and there's this idea of this addicted to validation that comes from working but not necessarily the outputs of that actual work and so the alternative she suggested was to learn to accept constructive criticism seriously and not take it really personally yeah sometimes that's tough right like getting feedback you're like oh that was that was painful and like you have to kind of separate yourself from that and be okay cool next one so the next one is natural genius, the natural genius. And I had a moment where I read this at first and I was like, oh yeah, that's me, <laughs> which is like the opposite of imposter syndrome. That's a different problem, right? So some of the characteristics that she notes here are like competence is judged by ease of acquisition. Anything that takes too long to understand or to master anything that is like shameful. Like if you take too long, it's hard to kind of swallow that pill. Impossibly high bars. It's similar to the perfectionist where you have these high expectations, but the expectation is also to master something on the first try. And practice is an indication that you're not really getting it and you're not really there. You're not good enough to understand it. You're used to excelling without much effort. So basically you can pick up a topic, you can pick up a new skill and you can do it really quickly without a lot of practice. And in, within that, you've got these ideas of self-fulfilling prophecies and, and pressures that you kind of set on yourself when you say things like, oh, I can do this. I can learn very quickly. I'm smart, right? You have that, those questions like, I'm a smart person. I should understand this. And then when you fail, you don't do that. You know, you've got a track record of straight A's, gold stars, praise, being the smart one. And so my initial reaction was that I did relate to it. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm the natural genius. But legitimately, this has been my struggle. If I don't understand something very quickly, I beat myself up over it like crazy. And so it takes me a lot. It takes a lot for out of me um, to have some of these characteristics. Now, some of the alternatives that they mentioned is you see yourself as a work in progress. You kind of understand that there's there's always something to learn. And you sometimes it does take a little bit of practice and in, in understanding. And you can identify some behavior within that that can improve over time. So you can actually chunk up these larger things into smaller behavior changes that might be helpful for learning the skill. That makes sense. So the next one is called the soloist, which is characterized, as you might imagine by the title, as someone who doesn't want to ask for help. And they tend to try and take on everything themselves. And they, to, to the person who is the soloist, asking for help sort of reveals them as a phony, as a fraud. So this is that avoid being found out sort of thing. And that to achieve success, they have to do it by themselves. So that's a sort of lone wolf approach. And that sort of was described when we were talking about earlier as Dave Grohl and even John Lennon sounded like they kind of fit into this category. And the alternative suggestion here is to actually ask for help and to delegate. You know, this is to reach out to other people and allow them to contribute to the task that you're taking on. Yeah. And then the last one that she mentions is this, this idea of the expert. And so essentially what the expert is, is that they measure their competence based on some knowledge of what they can and can't do, but fear being exposed for never knowing enough. So that's that person that has to know everything. 
and have all that information. So they don't apply to something if they don't qualify it, even for one requirement. So they'll see a job posting and it'll they'll check off every box except for maybe one and they'll say, nah, I'm not good enough for that, right? And then you they're, they're constantly seeking out training, certifications to improve their skills, to get better. And they kind of, what ends up happening is they always kind of move the goalpost, right? I can do this, I, I, I can know this stuff, I have to know all the things, but there's never an end point and that can be a big problem. So for this, type of person or this type of imposter, what they should be doing is they should be looking at how to accept that there's always more ways to learn. There's always something new to learn and that's okay. And you learn skills as you need them, not just for the hell of it. So that's another way to look at that. Like otherwise you're just hoarding behaviors and hoarding certifications and stuff, which is kind of a funny thing to think about. You know, I always look at like learning a new skill as adding a tool to your toolbox. And so I'm just going to get tools just to have them. <laughs> you know, and now you have this toolbox full that you can't even move. You can't even bring with you because it's too full. And they might consider like looking at like a mentoring role or or playing an expert role for others to come up because that's a really great way to learn is when you are mentoring people is kind of learning from that that new group of up and comers that are coming in. So Shane, which of these do you think you fall into most closely? I think that I would say that for me, I think that the natural genius and the expert are, my, are mine for sure. Okay. I, I say for me, it's probably the soloist, but I see a lot in the expert thing where I definitely have found myself evaluating how much I can sort of memorize as being the criteria by which I would call myself competent in something. And even then there seems to be no amount of what I can memorize to say that I really understand it. And if I can't recall it at the drop of a hat, then it's like, I don't know anything. I'm an idiot. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I think that anytime there's like new research in our field, like I remember the first time I'd heard about RFT and I didn't understand it right away, I was like, nope, I'm done. I'm done. I should just give up my certification. I'm going to go back to being an RBT. <laughs> so I had that moment. So, but I think that's a great point is I think that anybody who is in our field or in any sort of leadership role or something where you're looked to as the expert, you're going to probably experience one of these general things. I can't imagine that you're going to probably experience all of it, you're, but you're most people will experience at least one of these things within their lifetime. Yeah, exactly. And that's what the numbers bear out as well. So now we need to understand then whether or not imposter syndrome is a good thing. And there is some correlation that with that perfectionists and these people that are imposters tend to be fairly successful. It's hard to say necessarily that there's a cause-effect relationship if they're successful because they have imposter syndrome or if they have imposter syndrome because they're successful. I'm inclined to believe the latter, which is to say that I think that being successful causes people to question their role in that success, not that they are afraid that they're not successful and so they work really hard because I can't imagine what the motivation would be if you had achieved nothing and you're like, oh, everyone thinks I'm a successful, but I'm really a fraud. I'm like, nope, no one does. No one thinks they're successful. <laughs> you achieved nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I don't know what the motivation, like, that's almost delusions of grandeur at that point. So it seems like it has to be the other way around to me. But yeah, but I mean, if you really think about the the major problem here is that this approach can really lead to a lot of burnout. And it's not really a particularly desirable condition, even though the, it can have that appearance of high productivity, because it can also be so much self-sabotage. And it might predict achievement, but it's not necessarily a characteristic of success. And as we mentioned, although 70% of people who are successful report experiencing this, that means that there are 30% of people who are successful who don't 
report experiencing this. And that's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one thing I would probably note here is that, you know, there was the one category that talked about like the, the expert in particular, where you may not apply for something or you may not seek out an opportunity for something because you don't meet one requirement. And that's probably a bad part. Like a, one of the bad parts of having imposter syndrome is that you might miss opportunities that you perfectly qualify for that you are probably really great at and you may miss it simply because you kind of like taught yourself out of the space and it could i think very easily lead to other mental health issues down the road if if it really spirals out of control and it won't necessarily like just by its nature but they could result in that so yeah all right, so let's talk about there. Although I mentioned there's not a real clear reason why, there are some potential circumstances that would be relatively decent explanations for the conditions under which this is most likely to occur. If you want to go into those, one of the things that they talk about, and, and this is specifically from APA.org, is this idea of effects of circumstance. And so, one thing that might lead to having these thoughts or feelings about imposterness or <laughs> uh, imposterdom? I love that imposterness. <laughs> Is it imposterness or imposterdom? Hmm. I don't know. I like I like imposterdom too. I don't know. Either way, so They're there's yes. Yeah, so circumstances can lead to that, and so one thing might be growing up in families with a big emphasis on achievement. So I don't know what your family situation looked like. That was not a big emphasis in my family, but I have met people that they come from families of doctors and they come from surgeons and they do all this stuff and and they really struggle with this idea of of having this high achievement. And there's also kind of built into that and wrapped up under that is this idea of mixed messages of where there's a lot of criticism. There's a lot of praise for stuff. And and, and it's just kind of confusing. They're pra maybe praising the wrong things, like they're praising traits and not actual achievements, or they're criticizing things that aren't really in that learner's control. So there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into that circumstance piece. Right. Yeah. And I think all of these are saying, because even the categories here seem to say that you're rich, you're poor, you're whatever, it doesn't matter, you're going to experience this. And that's because all this has to do do with the circumstances in place pushing toward the pressure to achieve in some capacity or another, which is not inherently a bad thing. It's just when that results in this unease about it that becomes really pervasive. And I think to the last point, talking about these marginalized communities and minority groups, that there can often be that sense of responsibility to perform higher because they belong to a group that's not expected to do well. And so under those circumstances, they're sort of always fearing like, I this isn't good enough because I have to achieve so much just to be at the level of recognition relative to other people that's a very real circumstance for people who fit into some of those more minority groups. And then they therefore seem more likely to en encounter that imposter syndrome. And this, this could be some family dynamics that are going on with those people. And this could be some of the general patterns of their personality and behavior that they engage in. And we'll talk more about personality in an upcoming episode, as well as how they fit inside of their workplace. You know, if they're a minority, both in their community and in their work, then that can really feel to, that experience to really have to push harder. And this is also seen, uh, this is believed to be potentially more prevalent in women specifically. And this is related in a way potentially to the existing still to this day wage gap in pay that women often experience, as well as I think there's often a lack of recognition to the contributions that a lot of women make to organizations in science. Yeah. And I think to kind of piggyback on that discussion around marginalized groups, I mean, you have the people that are maybe suffering from this a lot come from these spaces where maybe they're a descendant of an immigrant and they have to kind of like build the dream, right? Or maybe there's some values that are Eastern versus Western 
Western value differences. You've got people, there's pressure along these like majority groups where if you're part of a minority group that you're feeling pressure to compete with that majority group too. And that speaks a lot to kind of those family dynamics and all those cultural pressures and those social pressures that go along with that. Now, essentially what ends up happening is that for each person that experiences this, there is some constellation of variables and environmental factors that contribute to that. Right. So successful people come from all these different situations. They sometimes wind up in beneficial situations. They meet interesting people. They attend classes. They go to trainings. They set goals. They follow through. They do all these things. But it's all this. And kind of going back to Malcolm Gladwell's point is that there are so many unique moving parts within this that it's hard to gauge, you know, what's working and what's not sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's transition to a discussion about the sort of recommendations for how to avoid having to encounter this at all or how to deal with it if you do encounter it. And so one here is thinking about that there's this analogy of sort of putting on your oxygen mask first, the sort of when you're on an airplane, that's what they always say is put your oxygen mask on first before putting it on your kid or whoever's dependent on you because if you pass out before you can help them, then everybody loses. And so this idea of dealing with your own insecurities in a role as an advisor or mentor or a therapist or whatever, so that it doesn't then affect your work with your client down the road. And so some recommendations put forward by bamentorship.net as one of the resources, the five listed are to find a mentor, acknowledge events differently, list your strengths and accomplishments, educate yourself, and accept that failures create learning opportunities for you to improve. So I'll just We'll just summarize those really quick. So the first one here, finding a mentor just really means to find someone who can further articulate what skills you need to continue to advance and to grow and who are going to give you feedback and that they can also sort of give you their own story that will show you that like other people have had a similar path as you. Yeah. And then the second point is acknowledge events differently. And so what that means is taking the time to kind of think about like we did that perspective taking piece where you kind of take a second to look at it from a different viewpoint. You know, basically what you're doing is you're reframing that situation. So, hey, you know what? I messed up in this situation. It was really tough. It was really, really difficult for me to get through. Then I can go back and say, okay, it was difficult. Here's why it was difficult. Here's what I could do instead. But here's also some of the cool outcomes that came out of that. So instead of looking at something with literally one lens, it's important to kind of take a few different viewpoints about it and see if that helps kind of alleviate your thoughts about that. And this third one on listing strengths and accomplishments, this is actually sort of more about sort of setting goals for yourself, the way that it's described, and really setting manageable goals and then being able to actually list the actual accomplishments that you've made. And I know of a specific group of people who have pioneered this idea just casually with themselves about setting goals where the goals are ludicrously easy. So if they want to write a book, then their goal is this week, I want you to sit down and write three letters or write one word. Yeah. And people sit down and do way more than that, but then they always accomplish that goal. And so like I've had a goal for myself where if it's I spend 10 minutes a day cleaning some part of the house, it always ends up being more than 10 minutes and the house gets a lot cleaner, but I'm also able to accomplish that goal. So that's another thing that's recommended here. Yeah. Another one too is educating yourself. Basically, if you feel like you're missing something, look at it as an opportunity to learn and grow. I have kind of had to learn to do that instead of it being like, well, you know, I don't understand it right away. So, you know, I'm going to go ahead and drop it. It's been, I don't understand this right away. I need more training in this. So I need to learn a little bit more about this particular concept. And so that's a way to kind of make you more competent and more confident within that and kind of erase that feeling of 
that you're not good enough or that you don't know your stuff. And this last one, and accepting that failure creates learning opportunities. I mean, the name itself is pretty straightforward. It's just looking at any time that you do something incorrectly, assuming this wasn't like fatal, then that's an opportunity to learn how to do it better next time, right? So you're less likely to make that mistake because you learned something about the situation in which you made that mistake. And I've actually read plenty of, of recommendations for people learning certain skills of like, do it completely wrong so that you know what doing it wrong feels like. Yeah. And like allow yourself to make those mistakes because then you'll learn how to do it better next time. And I think there's there's often this push of never failing, of never contacting failure and only ever being successful, I think is really detrimental to people's success because our failures are so instructive in teaching us how to do things better. And so seeing them in that way as an opportunity to do better, I think is a really helpful way of orienting to situations like that. Yeah, absolutely. So another example of something that might help to kind of like deal with this idea of, of imposter syndrome is this idea of learning how to accept feedback and criticism. That is very tough. I mean, how do you deal with accepting feedback? You feel pretty good about it? Me personally? Yeah. Or are you just asking the listener? No, I'm asking <laughs> you. I'm asking <laughs> yeah, you <no>. personally. <laughs> it has been variable. I always struggle with feedback that I felt was very unnecessary. So when people tell me something that I obviously know and like that to me isn't helpful, it's a sort of, if you ever watched South Park, the head captain hindsight, come on. He's like, <laughs> you guys should have built that a lot better. Like. Uh-huh. Thanks. Go on. Yeah. So, you know, when people say, if, if something broke and they're like, oh, you should have been more careful. Like, really? I didn't think about that. Wow. What an insightful comment. So like that kind of <laughs> feedback always made me very upset because I'm like, this is not helpful and it's so unhelpful. It's insulting. <laughs> and so it, to that extent, I think I've always been irritated by feedback that I think is falls into that category, but feedback that corrects something that I'm very definitely doing wrong or definitely could improve on. I always am very grateful for. Yeah. I think it took me a little bit to get there and kind of one of the things they talk about underneath this idea of accepting criticism is like withholding that emotional knee jerk reaction. Right. I know for a long time, you know, I was a little bit of a hothead. And so when somebody would give me feedback, my first thing would be like, you don't know what you're talking about. And it was more like, you know, or it was a personal attack. And I had to learn to kind of take a step back from that and say, you know, once I kind of learned like more of a behavioral framework, I kind of learned that like, if they're telling me this, then there's something to that somewhere. Like there's something there that's going to, that's prompting them to say that to me. So I've had to learn to kind of withhold that emotional reaction and just understand that if somebody's giving me feedback, there's probably some benefit to either improve my skill, improve my relationship, improve something within that. Right. I actually relate to that really well, similar to what you were saying. Cause I also had, I'm speaking now. I think I do much better with feedback than I used to. Cause I also had that reaction of if you are, you are attacking me or contradicting me, I'm angry at you. That sort of emotional thing. And I definitely have learned to approach this a lot more as whatever my thought is about how I'm doing on this thing, your experience is that I'm doing it differently and I need to understand that and how to like what the importance is of me changing this to and just basically taking responsibility for it. And so really seeing feedback as being valid in every case. And I still acknowledge when it's when it's useless feedback, then I'll try and allow that person to understand like 
let me show you why this isn't helpful for me and not be mean about it. I try not to be mean about it. I'm probably still mean about it. But again, like telling me to be careful when I broke something is just why. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that use of I language, right? Like you said, like that might be helpful for somebody else, but this is not helpful for me. So like, here's what would be helpful for me. So that if you are going to give me feedback, I can use it. Yeah. Well, and people have specifically said, oh, I hold it like this so that it never falls. Or when I went in here, I noticed that I tend to move this way. So I had to step back so that I don't bump into this thing. And and those are all hypothetical examples. But the point being, giving specific recommendations is a lot more helpful than telling me that you did something wrong. I'm like, well, this I had no idea the thing shattering on the floor wasn't supposed to be there. So, <laughs> right. so that feedback piece is good for kind of getting through some of these things. I think the other thing too, just to kind of, as you're starting to learn to deal with this, is this idea of reframing and, and kind of attending to different ways to look at a situation. And so when you start looking at your work and your performance, you start kind of, and specifically if you look at your mistakes, you want to take a moment to recognize that one, it, it might've been a mistake, but two, maybe that's part of the process towards becoming more successful and to mastering a particular behavior or skill. So Thomas Edison has a really famous quote that says, quote, I have not failed. I've only found 10,000 ways that won't work. <laughs> and I think that's a really great way to say like, Hey, I messed up a whole lot, but I know those don't work anymore. So I'm going to hopefully do better with this going forward. That's a not imposter way of thinking about it or <laughs> yeah. imp not imposter syndrome way of thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. A couple other interesting pieces before we wrap up here. And this is something we've mentioned before, but those experiencing this imposter syndrome will often do this self-sabotage thing and otherwise begin to demonstrate certain patterns in their behavior that interfere with them making progress. And that certainly procrastinating, I think, falls in that camp. And this may be this fear of higher expectations being placed on you if you do continue to achieve or that the tasks get more and more complex or that if you're subpar, then you won't necessarily expose yourself as being a fraud. So I think you can sort of see the way that you frame the the context of your experience can affect then how you approach it and really be this self-sabotaging thing where you shoot yourself in the foot to avoid shooting yourself in the foot. <laughs> that is something that I struggle with is like I mentioned before is talking yourself out of the room. Like, you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure the minute that you start just not giving yourself the chance to do it. Right. So this other interesting tidbit about this idea of, of imposter syndrome is that originally this was a billed as a women's issue. You know, according to Talkspace, it was billed as an issue in the 70s for women and continuing research has found that there isn't really a difference between identified sexes. So what they do find is that women are typically more comfortable with discussing their emotional experiences. And so maybe that's why this phenomenon was identified as a women's issue earlier. But that's kind of a, an interesting thing to, to look at is this, the, you know, the research around specific populations. Sort of a sampling bias. Yeah. All right. Shall we wrap it up? I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Okay. So leaving this episode, I think the important thing to remember is that people from all demographics and all walks of life and all levels of success even will report experiencing some level of this imposter syndrome to an extent and that it may not fit neatly into the categories that we describe, but that general sense of lack of deserving of the maybe recognition or even the opportunity to have some level of autonomy is that something you don't deserve. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's some 
Different factors that have to do with with your the individual's learning history. You know, you've got social pressures, cultural, academic, family, workplace demands. Those different types of dynamics spanning across an entire lifespan can contribute to those thoughts and feelings and those experiences in general. And that there's essentially two main ways of thinking about how this tends to appear that someone who's experiencing imposter syndrome, that they'll either procrastinate or be sort of workaholics. And obviously the workaholic is going to be the one that looks more productive, but both of them are potentially going to be self-sabotaging and both of them could affect your general mental well-being. Yeah. And just to kind of combat this, there are some small adjustments that you can make some little tweaks in your daily life or work or home routines that can evolve and help you, you know, kind of adapt to these challenges that come up. So what you'll see is maybe you acknowledge successes as they occur. Maybe you acknowledge things that you wouldn't normally acknowledge. Like I heard a podcast where a prominent name in our field had talked about collecting data on things they said no to. And that was a cool measure of success that they were looking at. Maybe you start setting these short-term obtainable goals that lead to these larger goals. I mean, that's there's a lot of science behind that. That's really super helpful. Keep a record of those successes. Keep a record of those things that are invitations and whatnot. Find a role model. And there's just a lot of small things that you can introduce to kind of help combat that feeling of that you shouldn't be here and that you know you don't deserve a space at the table. And then just think about the fact that probably everybody that you look up to professionally or otherwise has, or not everyone, but most people that you look up to in those capacities has either experienced this or does experience this regularly of feeling inadequate or that they're frauds. So you're not alone. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the biggest realizations I ever had is when I got to be an adult and I started talking to my parents about stuff and realized that they were human beings that were trying to figure it all out too. Yeah. They really did not have all the answers. And that was a big eye opening thing for me. It's like, we're a bunch of people that don't know what we're doing that are just trying to figure it out the best that we can. And so we just kind of got to live in that moment and be okay with that. Yeah, exactly. All right. Got a couple of quick recommendations. Recommendations. All right, so I'll go first. The one I'm going to recommend today, this is a book I read a long time ago, but it just recently became relevant to me again. And it's by author Edward Tufte. And he's written a few books over time, but the one that I have that I really like is called The Visual Display of Quantitative Information. And as nerdy as that sounds, the book is even nerdier than that. <laughs> but the, the reason I love this is because he's such a scientist and there's something so important about understanding what is being conveyed when you put data on a graph in a particular way. And this whole book is about how you can lead or mislead or represent various aspects of any particular set of data just by altering how you arrange those data, either graphically or in table form or otherwise. And so his sort of, a lot of the book just surveys existing structures of representing data, but he also has some general recommendations for, you know, essentially it is to have certain orientations if you're going to do something like an ordinate graph where you have an X and Y axis and what recommendations would be for essentially conveying as much information as possible given your visual system so that it's succinct and accessible. I love that. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i going to check that out. That sounds great. My recommendation is not anything near that this week. So mine is just the Bad Boys movie series. So I recently saw Bad Boys for Life in theaters, 
And um, if you are not familiar with the series, it is literally just a nonstop action, ridiculous movie, always set in Miami, always over the top. It's Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, Michael Bay style movies where it's like strange film angles and everything's blowing up and lots of just just totally mindless and fun. And I just I've had a really good time with it. So better or worse than Fast and the Furious. I have not seen enough of the newer Fast and Furious movies to say. But I would say that if you like stuff like that and you have fun with it, it's in that ballpark. Okay. I also have not seen very many of them, and I probably called them by the wrong name because I just realized I put articles in front of all the words, and it's probably just Fast and Furious. But No, I think the original one was the Fast and the Furious, and then it was Faster and furious Yeah. <laughs> like that. so fast so, so fast so furious there's an snl skit there's a they had a movie reviewer on and she was talking about that and she's like fast and the furious vin diesel should take a fast walk into a furious wood chipper please like she's like like that was how she would review stuff and i thought that was really funny <laughs> Nice. All right, cool. Let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you so much for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Alan Kinsella, for all of his awesome notes on this episode today. Yeah. If you'd like to learn more about this, go to our website. You can find this episode. You can check out all the links in the show notes, which will also be on the website. If you have experienced imposter syndrome and would love to share your story, we would love to share your story as well with our other listeners. Or you can tell us in private and we won't share it. That's up to you. Feel free to write us at info at www.podcast.com. And of course, you can reach us on all the other social media platforms. You have anything else before we head out of here, Shane? Nope, that's it. All right, then this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo designed by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.